Welcome to the PMHMP Podcast, the definitive podcast for those passionate about mental health throughout every stage of life. Whether you're an aspiring professional, a seasoned expert, or someone simply keen to understand the intricate world of psychiatric care, you're in the right place. I'm Dr. John Rossi, a certified PMHMP nurse educator and lead content creator and instructor at Clarity Education Systems and www.pmhmptesting.com. All right, so in this episode, we're going to take a closer look at a class of medications known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. These are FDA-approved medications for the treatment of depressive disorders, as well as a wide variety of other psychiatric mental health conditions. So first up is going to be sertraline or Zoloft. So sertraline is a widely prescribed antidepressant, functions primarily by inhibiting the reuptake of serotonin at the presynaptic sites. This action leads to an increased concentration of serotonin in the synaptic cleft and then enhancing its availability within the central nervous system. Serotonin is a key neurotransmitter involved in the regulation of mood, personality, and wakefulness. Its enhanced availability is crucial for the therapeutic effect of sertraline in treating those major depressive disorders and other psychiatric conditions by positively influencing mood regulation. In addition to its significant impact of serotonin levels, sertraline inhibits a relatively low influence on uptake of norepinephrine and dopamine. However, it is noteworthy that compared to other SSRIs, sertraline displays a comparatively higher dopaminergic activity. This unique profile may contribute to its effectiveness in treating a broader range of psychiatric disorders beyond depression, including anxiety disorders, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and panic disorder. Now, the efficacy of sertraline in the management of these conditions is supported by a robust body of evidence, okay? So clinical trials and research studies have consistently demonstrated its ability to improve symptoms of depression and anxiety, underscoring its value as a first-line treatment option in psychiatric care. So as stated, Zoloft is primarily a primary option for treating major depressive disorder. Its effectiveness doesn't stop there, though, as we just said. It's also FDA-approved for managing a range of conditions such as obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, panic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and social anxiety disorder. So beyond its FDA-approved uses, sertraline is also used off-labelly for conditions such as binge eating disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, bulimia nervosa, generalized anxiety disorder, and even premature ejaculation. Off-label use refers to the practice of prescribing that medication for a condition or age group that is not specifically approved by the FDA. So this practice is common in psychiatric and medical treatments. This allows the clinician to use their clinical judgment in cases where they believe a medication really could be beneficial even without the official nod from the FDA to use it for that specific use. When it comes to prescribing medications like sertraline or others for non-FDA-approved indications, you have to understand that it's very important for transparent communication with the patient. So this involves discussing the rationale behind choosing sertraline or other medications for their particular condition, the evidence that supports its use, and any potential risks or benefits. 
It also includes a discussion about the level of evidence supporting its use for that specific condition, acknowledging that while not officially approved, there's clinical experience or research suggesting its potential effectiveness. So they must be clearly identified, clearly communicated, and then clearly charted. We want to put everything in there that we talk to the patient about, especially the patient's willingness or approval to use the non-FDA approved medication and their understanding of all of the information. So this approach ensures that the patients are fully informed about their treatment options and the reasons behind certain medication choices. It really does underscore the importance of trust and collaboration with the patient-provider relationship. What does this do ultimately? It ensures that the treatment decisions are made considering both clinical evidence and individual patient needs. Okay, so that's just kind of a quick overview of what we do when we treat somebody with an FDA off-label use. We'll kind of consider that as we go through all of the SSRIs today, but let's jump back into sertraline. So again, sertraline is known for that flexibility, right? This is also seen in flexibility of, of administration. So it's taken orally once a day, either in the morning or the evening. So this adaptability allows for the patient to choose a dosing time that best fits their daily routine and then minimizes any side effects. For instance, if sertraline causes drowsiness or somnolence, taking it in the evening may be preferable to the patient. It is interesting the absorption of sertraline can be enhanced when it is consumed with food, so offering a simple strategy to potentially increase its efficacy as well. The medication is available in various forms and strengths, so we have oral tablets and they come in 25, 50, and 100 milligrams. Capsules are also available in 150 and 200 milligrams. And there's also a liquid solution form, which is 20 milligrams per milliliter. This range of dose and forms really gives this medication the ability to be tailored to meet those individual needs of the patients. So regarding dosing, the FDA recommends starting with a dose of 50 milligrams once daily for both major depressive disorder and OCD. Depending on the patient's response, the maintenance dose for this medication can be adjusted within a range of about 50 to 200 milligrams daily. So you have to consider increasing the dose in weekly intervals to achieve that desired therapeutic effect, ensuring a careful balance between efficacy and tolerability. For premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD, sertraline offers two dosing strategies, so continuous and intermittent. Continuous dosing involves taking sertraline every day at a starting dose of 50 milligrams, which can then be increased to 50 mil in 50 milligram increments per menstrual cycle up to that maximum of 150 milligrams daily. And then based on patient response, right, that's how we're going to dose it. Now, on the other hand, intermittent dosing targets the luteal phase of menstrual cycles. It starts 14 days before the expected start of menstruation until its end. So initially, patients take 50 milligrams once daily, which can be adjusted to 50 milligrams for the first three days of dosing, followed by 100 milligrams daily for the remaining days of the cycle, and then repeating in with each new cycle. So this detailed approach to dosing highlights the importance of individualized treatment plans in managing that, that condition. Then it also underscores the need for ongoing communication between the patient and the healthcare provider to monitor for effectiveness and then adjust treatments as necessary. And this is going to ensure that optimal outcomes with minimal side effects. And that's really the goal for you as the clinician. 
Now, for individuals dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, panic disorder, or social anxiety, sertraline treatment typically starts with an initial dose of 25 milligrams once daily, and then we tailor it, right, as the treatment and the patient needs manifest. So this dose can be increased to 50 milligrams in 50 milligram increments weekly, taking us to that maximum 200 milligram per day dose. Children 6 to 12 years of age and most elderly patients typically start at 25 milligrams once a day, taken either in the morning or the evening. When considering special populations such as pregnant women, breastfeeding mothers, and those with hepatic or renal impairment, sertraline use requires additional consideration, okay? So pregnancy. This is according to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Sertraline is classified as that category C medication. So this classification suggests that while animal reproduction studies have shown an adverse effect on the fetus, there are no adequate and well-controlled studies in humans. However, the potential benefits may warrant the use of drug in pregnant women despite the potential risks. That's what's going to determine that classification or category of C. So we have to weigh the benefits against the risk when prescribing sertraline to a pregnant patient, okay? And then we get into breastfeeding. So among antidepressants, sertraline is often preferred for breastfeeding women. This preference is used due to its lower levels of transmission through breast milk and its minimal effects on the infant. It is important for breastfeeding mothers to discuss the potential risks and benefits of using sertraline with their provider to ensure the safety of both mom and baby. Now, patients with liver disease should use sertraline with caution as well, given the liver's role in metabolizing the medications. Those with hepatic impairment may require a lower dose or a less frequent dose of sertraline to prevent the accumulation of the drug in the body and then reduce the risk of side effects. According to the product labeling for sertraline, there is no specific dose adjustment for patients with renal impairment. This indicates that the kidney's functions doesn't significantly affect the metabolism or excretion of sertraline. But as with any medication, really, it's, it's advisable for patients with renal issues to consult their provider, and we want to personalize their, their treatment plan. So even, even though we don't really see a lot of complications, with renal patients, we want to still have that discussion with them. Okay, when considering discontinuing sertraline, it's important to be aware of the potential for that withdrawal symptom situation. So discontinuation syndrome, especially if the medication is stopped abruptly. Discontinuation can have symptoms including nausea, sweating, or diaphoresis. A dysphoric mood, irritability, agitation can lead to vertigo, sensory disturbances such as paresthesia or electric shock sensations, tremor, anxiety, confusion, headache, lethargy, emotional instability, sleep disturbances, hypomania, tinnitus, and in rare situations, it can actually cause seizures. So to minimize these adverse effects of the, the discontinuation of sertraline, a gradual reduction in dosage is recommended rather than just a sudden stop. Now, we have to consider all SSRIs when we talk about discontinuation as well as serotonin syndrome. So that'll kind of be a common theme as we go through this discussion. You know, as we're going to talk about quite a few medications, these SSRIs, and a lot of them are just grouped together with the same side effects and warnings. So we'll we'll repeat a lot of this, which is nice because hopefully through repetition, you'll have a better understanding of SSRIs by the end of this. 
So SSRIs, and specifically talking about sertraline right now, they're generally better and well more tolerated than other classes of antidepressants um, when we compare them to things like tricyclic antidepressants or monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Common side effects of sertraline are going to include things like syncope, lightheadedness, diarrhea, nausea, sweating, dizziness, dry mouth, confusion, hallucinations, tremors, drowsiness, sexual dysfunction, that's a big one, fatigue, rhinitis, disturbances in sexual dysfunction, okay? So sertraline carries that risk of bleeding due to its potential to inhibit platelet aggregation and can modestly prolong QT intervals, a measure of that heart rhythm, right? Especially at higher doses. So the risk of QT prolongation is more significant with citalopram than with sertraline or other SSRIs. Serotonin syndrome this is a review of the information that you'll find in the seminars, but it is that potentially life-threatening condition and can occur when sertraline is taken in particular with a combination of other serotonergic medications. But it's when we have that increased level of serotonin in the body, so serotonin syndrome. Symptoms are going to include muscle twitching, muscle rigidity, excessive sweating, tremor, reflexes that are stronger than normal, so hyperreflexia confusion, and high fever. So there is an increased risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors in children, adolescents, and young adults. Typically, we see this at 24 years of age and younger with major depressive disorder who are treated with sertraline and other SSRIs. So the FDA has issued that black box warning highlighting the risk for increased suicidality in pediatric patients and young adults. So we have to carefully monitor and then educate the patient and their parents or family members, whoever their caregivers may be, about those associated risks with sertraline and other SSRIs. So like I said just a few minutes ago, that's really focusing on the adolescent young population, especially ages 18 to 24. So special caution is advised for patients 65 years of age or older because sertraline can lead to conditions like syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion or low sodium levels in the blood, so hyponatremia. And it's also listed in the Beers criteria as a medication to be used with caution in the elderly adult population. Patients taking sertraline should also be observed for abnormal bleeding. The risk of such bleeding events is heightened when sertraline is used in conjunction with uh, medications like aspirin, NSAIDs, warfarin, or other anticoagulants. This is due to its effect on impairing platelet aggregation. So this can lead to symptoms such as bruising, nosebleeds, or even more serious forms of hemorrhage. Now, in the event of sertraline overdose, which is it's typically well-tolerated, but the primary concern would be that development of serotonin syndrome. So immediate discontinuation of the medication and supportive care will be needed. Management may include non-serotonergic antiemetics, benzodiazepines for sedation, and cooling measures to manage hyperthermia. In severe cases, we may also need to look at endotracheal intubation, external cooling, and even neuromuscular paralysis. It is crucial to remember that antipyretics are unlikely to be effective for hyperthermia resulting from serotonin syndrome. So let's look at those key things to remember in review of sertraline or Zoloft. So according to FDA guidelines, the recommended starting dose for treating MDD with sertraline is 50 milligrams per day, 
But older adults, we have to have a more cautious approach, and we may want to start with an initial dose of 25 milligrams per day to minimize potential side effects. For conditions such as PTSD, panic disorder, and social anxiety disorder, the starting dose is typically lower at 25 milligrams per day. This dosage can then be gradually increased in 50 milligram per day increments each week, depending on the patient's response to the medication, and that'll get us up to the maximum dose of 200 milligrams per day. Sertraline is designed for once daily dosing, offering flexibility as it can be taken um, at any time of the day to fit into that patient lifestyle and then minimize discomfort or side effects. When sertraline is combined with other serotonergic medications, there is that increased increased risk of developing serotonin syndrome, that potentially life-threatening condition. Serotonergic medications include, but are not limited to, other SSRIs, SNRIs, or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, certain antiemetics, and triptans for use of migraine headaches. The management of serotonin syndrome involves immediate discontinuation of sertraline and other contributing serotonergic agents. Supportive care is crucial and may include the use of non-serotonergic antiemetics, benzodiazepines for sedation and seizure prevention, and standard measures to reduce body temperature. So in cases where we see severe symptoms being presented like muscle rigidity and hyperthermia, where the body temperature exceeds 41 degrees Celsius or 105.8 degrees Fahrenheit, more extensive interventions such as sedation, endotracheal intubation for airway protection, external cooling techniques to reduce fever, and neuromuscular paralysis may be necessary. So it's important to note that traditional fever reducers, antipyretics, are not effective in treating hyperthermia caused by serotonin syndrome emphasizing that need for a more direct cooling and supportive measure. All right, so that's your quick overview of sertraline or Zoloft. We we also threw a lot of tidbits in there that will fit for any SSRI that we're studying, but that should give you a general understanding of this medication and how it's used not only for major depressive disorder, but other psychiatric conditions. All right, let's go into the next chapter here, and that's going to be citalopram or Celexa. So citalopram hydrobromide, or Celexa, has been FDA-approved since 1998. You're also going to see it on the WHO's model list of essential medicines and has been recognized by the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence as an endorsed product for first-line pharmacotherapy option for patients suffering from depression. So citalopram or Celexa is specifically approved for the treatment of depression in adults aged 18 and over. Off-label use, beyond that primary indication of depression, citalopram is frequently used for a variety of of mental health conditions. These are going to include OCD, panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, separation anxiety disorder, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, binge eating disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, premature ejaculation, and post-stroke depression. So really does have a wide a variety of, of indications. Citalopram operates as an effective antidepressant because it enhances serotonergic activity within the central nervous system. So this selective mechanism of action is pivotal because unlike many other antidepressants, citalopram, it has a minimal impact on the reuptake of norepinephrine and dopamine, which are neurotransmitters also involved in mood regulation, but to different 
extents and different levels. It's worth noting that citalopram demonstrates a low affinity for muscarinic acetylcholine receptors and acts as a mild antagonist in histamine receptors. However, it doesn't significantly interact with alpha or beta adrenergic receptors, nor does it affect receptors for dopamine, both D1 and D2, GABA, opioids, or benzodiazepines. This specificity contributes to its side effect profile and the overall efficacy of citalopram. So citalopram's onset of action typically ranges from one to four weeks with a full therapeutic response possibly taking up to 8 to 12 weeks to manifest. So this timeline is essential for managing patient expectations and monitoring treatment efficacy. And you're going to see that with the majority of antidepressant treatments. It's going to take, you know, typically between 6 to 8 weeks before they really start to see any effects. For individuals with hepatic impairment, mild to moderate renal impairment, those of older age, so we're looking at 60 years or older, and poor metabolizers of the CYP2-Charlie-1-9 enzyme, the half-life of citalopram can be significantly prolonged. This extended half-life necessitates careful dosing considerations in these populations in order to avoid accumulation and potential toxicity of Celexa. Metabolism plays a key role in subtylopram's pharmacokinetics, primarily involving the CYP453-alpha-4 and 2-Charlie-1-9 enzymes. Citalopram also has a weak inhibitory effect on 2-delta-6, which is relevant when considering potential drug interactions. Citalopram is available in various oral formulations, including 10 milligram, 20, and 40 milligram tablets, as well as an oral solution at a concentration of 10 milligrams per 5 milliliters. The recommended starting dose for adults is 20 milligrams once daily, which can be taken at the morning or evening timeframes with or without food. Depending on the patient's response and tolerability, the dosage may be increased to 40 milligrams daily after one week, with 40 milligrams being the maximum recommended daily dose. However, for patients over 60 years old or those identified as poor metabolizers of the CYP2-Charlie-1-9 enzyme, the maximum dosage is reduced to 20 milligrams daily. While there are anecdotal suggestions of higher dosing providing benefits for individuals with OCD, exceeding that 40 milligram daily dose is generally discouraged due to the increased risk of QT prolongation. That's a condition that can affect the heart rhythm. All right, so let's take a look at those specific populations that we have to be a little more cautious with. So patients with hepatic impairment are advised to adhere to a reduced dose that we just talked about of 20 milligrams daily, reflecting that liver's role in the drug metabolism in potential for increased exposure to the medication. There is no dosage adjustment required or deemed necessary for those with mild to moderate renal impairment. Citalopram falls under the FDA pregnancy category C, indicating that risk for complications of pregnancy can't be ruled out. It's not typically recommended during the first trimester due to potential risks. So exposure to SSRIs or SNRIs late in the third trimester has been linked to complications in neonates, necessitating the need for respiratory support, tube feeding, and extended hospital stays. Considering the uh, breastfeeding aspect of this, it's, it's considered acceptable for use during breastfeeding. Uh, citalopram is often continued if it were used during pregnancy or if other psychotropic medications have not been effective. So mom can continue to use it 
if they've been on it when they go into the breastfeeding phase. So generally recommended against switching antidepressants while breastfeeding in order to maintain treatment continuity and maternal mental health. So while not FDA approved for pediatric patients, citalopram may be prescribed off-label for conditions such as major depressive disorder, generalized disorder, anxiety disorder, and um, OCD in younger populations. But you have to carefully consider the risks and benefits and remember to chart and disclose everything. Citalopram is listed in the Beers criteria for the American Geriatric Society as potentially inappropriate for patients age 65 and older due to the risk of exasperating or inducing hyponatremia or syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion. Remember, for patients over 60 years of age or those identified as poor metabolizers of CYP2-Charlie19 enzymes, the maximum dosage is reduced to 20 milligrams daily. So hopefully we've said that enough and it's stuck in your head. Citalopram has a wide range of adverse effects that patients and, and you as the clinician need to be aware of. These effects vary in frequency and severity from common to relatively mild to rare and potentially serious. Again, we already looked at most of these when we talked about sertraline, but each of the SSRIs, we're going to have to touch on it, and hopefully you'll have it memorized by the end of this, this podcast. So most common adverse effects for citalopram, central nervous system, patients may experience drowsiness, insomnia, dizziness, and headaches, which can be dose-dependent. Increased sweating or diaphoresis is a notable side effect. I see it a lot with my patients. So one of the things that you want to have a, a good conversation with, especially if the patient already has a history of sweating, can be very distressing for them. Common issues can include nausea, vomiting, dry mouth, constipation, and diarrhea, and then dose-dependent ejac ejaculation disorder, uh, sexual dysfunction is also a reported concern by many patients. So some of the less common adverse effects, there are reports of myocardial infarction, prolonged QT interval, and torsades de ponts. Hemorrhage and abnormal bleeding have been observed. Incidents of cerebrovascular accidents have been noted. Suicidal ideation, actual suicide attempts, and induction of mania can occur. Serotonin syndrome and hyponatremia, especially in older patients and those with certain risk factors like those of the female population, concurrent diuretic use, low body weight, and recent pneumonia. These are rare, but can have that serious adverse effect of serotonin syndrome. Abrupt discontinuation will lead to discontinuation syndrome. This is that risk of stopping the antidepressant therapy too sudden. Symptoms range from nausea and vomiting to dizziness and sleep disturbances. To mitigate these effects, a gradual tapering off of the medication is recommended, considering the half-life of the drug and then the duration of the therapy that the patient has been on. So, with other, as with other SSRIs, don't forget that black box warning for young adults, typically aged 18 to 14, but it's going to be considered for anybody under the age of 24, close monitoring for worsening suicidality or unusual changes in behavior are going to be warranted. All right. So some of the important drug-to-drug -drug interactions to consider with citalopram, it's uh, noted that it does have drug interactions, particularly with medications like bupropion, omeprazole, fluconazole, among others, which can necessitate limiting the dosage of citalopram to just 20 milligrams per day to avoid serotonin toxicity. 
So additionally, SSRIs like citalopram can increase, like we just talked about earlier, that, that risk of bleeding, especially when we use it with things like aspirin, NSAIDs, and warfarin. All right, citalopram has specific contraindications that are crucial for ensuring patient safety. Among the most significant is the interaction with monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So the simultaneous use of citalopram with an MAOI can cause serotonin syndrome. All right, so muscle rigidity, high fever, autonomic instability, altered mental status, and in severe cases can even result in a coma. So given that risk of serotonergic hyperactivity, recommended that you wait 14 days after discontinuing citalopram before starting an MAOI. So this precaution is going to help prevent that overlap between the two drugs that would lead to serotonin syndrome. So citalopram's potential to inhibit CYP2-delta-6 poses a risk by possibly increasing the concentrations of thioridazine. This is a medication known to induce serious cardiac arrhythmias when it becomes in the blood when it becomes elevated. So we want to be careful when taking citalopram and thioridazine because of the inhibition of 2-delta-6. Citalopram should not be used in conjunction with certain medications due to risk of adverse interactions, things like a urokinase, pimazide, methylene blue, just to, to name a few. All right, research indicates that toxicity from citalopram is relatively rare, which is one of the reasons why we use it for first-line treatment for depression. In cases where we have overdose or more than 600 milligrams of citalopram being ingested at one situation within an eight-hour period, cardiac monitoring is necessary. Patients show no symptoms during that time. The QTC interval is below 450. They may be safely discharged. But if QTC interval exceeds that 450 milliseconds, continued inpatient cardiac monitoring becomes essential in order to manage any potential cardiac complications. Massive overdoses of cetylopram have been linked to recurrent seizures. In such instances, benzodiazepines are the preferred treatment option due to their efficacy in controlling the seizure. When it comes to managing serotonin syndrome, immediate cessation of citalopram is critical. Treatment focuses on those supportive care measures to treat hyperthermia and autonomic dysfunction effectively. Cyproheptidine, a serotonin antagonist targeting the 5-HT2 receptors, can be beneficial in mitigating the effects of excessive serotonin activity. So that's going to be a common thread here for any SSRI that you're given and resulting in serotonin syndrome, cyproheptidine is going to be your medication that you're going to give to treat that condition. All right, so in review for citalopram, key things to remember. It is primarily approved by the FDA for adult depression treatment to mitigate the risk of QT prolongation. Dose exceeding 40 milligrams per day are not recommended. For older adults, the dosage is further restricted to no more than 20 milligrams because of those potential cardiac side effects. Citalopram's mechanism of action is specifically targeted. It does not influence the reuptake of norepinephrine or dopamine. Its interaction with receptor sites is also notably selective, demonstrating a low affinity for muscarinic acetylcholine receptors and negligible impact on alpha or beta adrenergic, dopamine D1-D2, histamine, 5-HT2-1-alpha, 5-HT2-bravo, GABA, opioid, and benzodiazepine receptors. So this specificity contributes to citalopram's side effect profile and its effectiveness as an antidepressant.
So in the context of treating patients with anorexia nervosa who are also experiencing depression, SSRIs like citalopram are considered first-line antidepressants. It's important to clarify that while citalopram can be effective in addressing depressive symptoms associated with anorexia, it does not directly treat eating the eating disorder itself, okay? It's not FDA-approved for that. So the American Psychiatric Association, or the APA guidelines, recommend considering a second-generation antipsychotic for patients exhibiting severe anorexia symptoms, suggesting a multifaceted approach to treatment that addresses the complex interplay of the symptoms within that specific population. All right, and that's citalopram. So a lot to consider, a lot to remember. Let's move on to the next chapter here, which is going to look at isitalopram or Lexapro. So Lexapro is distinguished as the S enantiomer of citalopram, and it stands out for its highly selective inhibition of serotonin reuptake. So it is sanctioned for the treatment of a major depressive disorder, or MDD, in adults and adolescents aged 12 to 17. It's going to address both the acute and maintenance phases of unipolar depression. So its utility has been recognized in the management of generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD, as well for adults and most recently in pediatric patients age 7 and older, expanding its reach and its really potential impact on diverse populations. So beyond FDA-approved indications, Lexapro is frequently used in off-label uses for the treatment of social anxiety disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, panic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and premenstrual dysphoric disorder. It is also found a place in managing the vasomotor symptoms associated with menopause, and that's, that's a huge relief for those suffering from that particular condition or circumstance. So... Lexapro, it really works by interacting with sodium-dependent serotonin transporter proteins, or CERT, found in the presynaptic neurons. So CERT plays a crucial role in serotonin reuptake, transporting it from the synaptic cleft back into the presynaptic neuron. When Lexapro inhibits CERT, it increases serotonin levels, also known as 5-hydroxytryptan, or 5-HT, in the synaptic cleft. This elevation of serotonin is believed to contribute to the antidepressant and anoxylytic effects of Lexapro as well as other um, antidepressants working in similar ways, therefore enhancing mood and emotional well-being. So escitalopram or Lexapro doses range from 10 to 20 milligrams per day. Interestingly, though, the presence of food does not impact this drug's absorption, and this is going to simplify dosing regimens. So typically, peak plasma concentrations of Lexapro are reached about five hours after oral administration, and a steady state of concentrations are achieved within one to two weeks of daily dosing, which as we know, this can take up to six to eight weeks for some patients. So with a high volume of distribution, approximately 12 liters per kilogram, and relatively low plasma protein binding, about 56%, Lexapro is well distributed throughout the body. Its low plasma protein binding rates reduce the potential for drug-to-drug interactions with other medications that are highly bound by plasma proteins. Okay, so let's move on to the metabolism of Lexapro. So it is metabolized in the liver, like most psychotropic medications, primarily through the cytochrome P450 enzymes CYP3-alpha-4 and CYP2-charlie-1-9. So the elimination half-life of Lexapro ranges between 27 to 33 hours, allowing for once-a-day daily dosing, and both 
Escitalopram and its metabolites are primarily excreted in the urine, indicating the renal pathway as a significant route for elimination for this particular drug. So, escitalopram or Lexapro is available for oral administration in two formulas, as an oral solution with concentration of 1 mg per milliliter and as tablets in strengths of 5 mg, 10 mg, and 20 mg. This medication is typically taken once daily, either with or without food, and then facilitating um, that ease of integration into daily routines. So they, the patients really do have, you know, different times that they can take it in different situations, depending on their current uh, daily lifestyle. So the standard starting dose is 10 milligrams daily, but you can give it in a 5 milligram dose. You can even do a 10 milligram tablet that you give them, you know, instructions to take half a tablet for seven days, then increase to 10 milligram day. 10 milligrams a day afterwards. So this can be adjusted after one week based on symptom management. So transitioning from another SSRI to Lexapro may necessitate a four-week dose reduction period for optimal efficacy and most importantly for safety. So you do have to pay attention to what medication you're stopping and starting when you take into account changes in even SSRI to SSRI and other similar uh, classes. So for major depressive disorder, starting dose is 10 milligrams once daily with a maximum recommended dose of 20 milligrams. GAD has an initial dose also of 10 milligrams, but the maximum recommended dose itself remains typically at 10 milligrams for generalized anxiety. I will say that there are instances where there are situations and complications with a specific patient where you may need to go beyond the, the, the 20 milligram dosing for major depressive disorder, but that would be beyond the recommendation. And you have to make sure that you clearly identify that, talk about the risks, why the evidence does support it in certain cases, and then make sure you document it clearly. So for adolescents ages 12 and older with major depressive disorder, the starting and maximum recommended doses align with the adult recommendation. So 10 milligrams daily, I sometimes start at 5 milligrams and work my way up, and then finally up to that 20 milligrams per day. All right, moving into considerations for specific populations, for those with hepatic impairment, a dose of 10 milligrams a day is advised due to decreased oral clearance and extended half-life. For pregnancy, it is a Category C medication. We have to have careful monitoring and individualized dosing. Keep in mind that we also need to make sure that we are communicating with the specialists in mom-baby or OB, whoever they may be seeing for their care, to make sure we're properly communicating and identifying the needs of the patient for the mental health care as well as their pregnancy care. In breastfeeding, a lower dose may be preferable. This is to acknowledge that the drug and its metabolites may have presence in the breast milk. So the compatibility with breastfeeding is considered possible. So we allow mothers needing escitalopram to continue breastfeeding with appropriate oversight. For pediatric patients, despite pharmacokinetic differences observed in adolescents, no dosage adjustments is specifically required. And then for the older patients, we do have to potentially change the dosing here, starting with a 10 milligram dose, closely monitoring for hyponatremia risk. That's going to be important for the older population. So acetalopram has been associated with the induction of syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion, or SIADH, leading to hyponatremia, especially in that older adult population that we just talked about. The symptoms of hyponatremia are going to range from mild, such as nausea and fatigue, up to severe. That's going to include things like altered mental status, seizures, and even a coma. 
So QT prolongation, this is defined by a corrected QT interval exceeding 500 ms or a significant increase from baseline. This can uh, precipitate life-threatening cardiac arrhythmias, notably torsade de ponches. The condition stems from an inhibition of cardiac repolarization currents with the prolongation showing a dose-dependent relationship. So risk factors for torsades include older age, female gender, and certain cardiac conditions. Of course, serotonin syndrome arising from that excessive serotonin activity can lead to autonomic instability and neuromuscular excitation. So this is going to manifest with those same symptoms that we've talked about. You're going to hear this six or seven different times during this podcast. Serotonin syndrome symptoms, tachycardia, hypertension, and then more severe conditions like agitation, delirium, hyperreflexia. It typically occurs at that high SSRI dose level in overdose or when combined with other serotonergic agents such as an MAOI. So in the context of drug withdrawal, abrupt discontinuation of escitalopram can lead to symptoms like dizziness, nausea, and lethargy. So this is going to highlight the importance of gradual tapering. Drug-to-drug interactions are critical to consider when on or taking escitalopram to avoid complications like serotonin syndrome, in there's a variety of medications that we have to watch out for. So increased bleeding can also be an issue when they're on antiplatelet agents, uh, NSAIDs, low molecular weight heparin, and enhanced QT prolongation risk with other QT prolonging drugs. So just like with other SSRIs, we have the same black box warning. We have to regularly monitor for changes in mood or behavior, including those signs of increased suicidality. This is specifically for 24 and under, definitely in that 18 to 24 age range. But honestly, I ask and tell all patients about it. All right. So let's move on to our next medication. We're we're trying to knock these out as quickly as I can. I know there's a lot of information. My hope is that you'll almost listen to this podcast in like chapters. So take one medication, study it up, fill in any holes or gaps that you think might exist in your knowledge, and then move on to the next uh, medication. So next up, we're going to talk about fluoxetine or Prozac. So Prozac carries a wide array of FDA approvals for treating various psychiatric conditions. Obviously, this is going to showcase that versatility and, and efficacy in the SSRI world, especially with Prozac. It's approved for individuals with major depressive disorder starting at the age of eight, demonstrating safety and efficacy and effectiveness in both pediatric and adult populations. For obsessive compulsive disorder, its use is sanctioned from the age of seven. Additionally, fluoxetine is approved for the treatment of panic disorder, bulimia, binge eating disorders, and premenstrual dysphoric disorder. All right. So in the realm of bipolar depression, fluoxetine serves as an adjunct therapy when combined with onlancipine, offering that strategic approach to managing a really complex disease and disorder in bipolar. So this combination is recognized for its role in addressing treatment-resistant depression, providing a valuable option for those who have not responded to standard bipolar treatments. Now, beyond its FDA-approved uses, fluoxetine is employed in many off-label diseases and conditions. This includes the management of social anxiety disorder, or what we call social phobia, showcasing applicability in in addressing anxiety-related disorders. So for adults grappling with post-traumatic stress disorder, fluoxetine offers a therapeutic avenue as well. This is going to underscore its role in treating trauma-related symptoms as well. 
So it's used in treating borderline personality disorder, offering symptom relief. And for anybody that deals with patients with borderline, it is a challenging condition. This is going to be one of those medications that you can utilize, Prozac. So fluoxetine's utility extends to the treatment of Raynaud's phenomenon as well, providing symptomatic relief for vascular disorders and selective mutism. It operates primarily through the influence of serotonin or 5-HT uh, neurotransmission. Its mechanism of action is centered around the inhibition of serotonin reuptake into presynaptic neurons, a process facilitated by serotonin reuptake transporter proteins located in the presynaptic terminal. So this action effectively increases serotonin availability in the synoptic cleft, enhancing that serotonergic neurotransmission. Are we seeing a theme here, right? We're talking about SSRIs. This is what's going to happen in most of these cases. Again, each medication is going to do things a little differently based on its, you know, its structure. But in the end, we are increasing availability of serotonin at that junction site. So located in the dorsal raphinucleus, presynaptic serotonin or 5-HT1-alpha receptors project to the prefrontal cortex, playing a pivotal role in mood regulation and the therapeutic effects of fluoxetine. So besides its primary action, fluoxetine exhibits mild activity at the 5-HT2-alpha and 5-HT2-Charlie receptors, so this contributes to its overall pharmacological profile. So unlike other antidepressants, fluoxetine has minimal impact on the reuptake of noradrenaline, focusing its actions on the serotonergic system. So this specificity is believed to contribute to fluoxetine's activating effect, a characteristic that can be particularly beneficial in patients experiencing depression with predominant lethargy and low energy. So the clinical benefits of fluoxetine typically become apparent within two to four weeks. We can go up to six to eight weeks as well, thanks in part to its long half-life, which allows for sustained therapeutic levels. Fluoxetine is metabolized into norfluoxetine by the cytochrome P450 enzyme CYP2-delta-6. Now, norfluoxetine is an active metabolite. This further contributes to medication's efficacy and inhibits CYP3-alpha-4, another metabolic pathway. So this complex metabolism, again, underscores the potential for drug-to-drug -drug interactions, particularly with medications also metabolized by CYP2-delta-6 isoenzymes. So fluoxetine offers flexibility in dosing and formulation. It's available for oral um, administration with options including oral solutions, uh, 20 milligrams per 5 milliliters, tablets, 10 milligrams, 20, and 60 milligrams. It also comes in capsule form, 10 milligram, 20, and 40 milligrams. There's also a delayed release capsule at a 90 milligram dose. So typically prescribed once daily, either in the morning or the evening, the starting dose for most indications is 20 milligrams daily. However, considering the potential for side effects, starting doses can be adjusted to 10 milligrams daily to enhance tolerability depending on your patient. So for conditions like bulimia, doses may range from 60 to 80 milligrams daily to achieve efficacy. The unique delayed release capsule allows for weekly dosing options, so 90 milligrams once weekly. This provides an equivalent efficacy to a daily dose of about 20 milligrams which can significantly benefit patient adherence and convenience, right? You have to look at your patient, what's going to work best for them. 
regarding discontinuation, fluoxetine's long half-life contributes to a lower risk of abrupt withdrawal symptoms commonly associated with other SSRIs. Yet, when transitioning to medications like a monoamine oxidase, a careful approach is, is key. It's, it's necessary. You have to use it. Discontinuing fluoxetine five to six weeks prior to minimize that risk that's associated with serotonin syndrome. So five to six weeks, stopping the medication during that time before you start the MAOI. Additionally, the, the interaction with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs, this may affect fluoxetine's effectiveness as well. So this is going to highlight that importance of monitoring for potential drug-to-drug interactions. Okay, so we do have to talk about the pregnancy considerations, breastfeeding, pediatric, hepatic. Again, a lot of this is going to be repeated. So by the end of this podcast, this should be in your head and you know what to look for when it comes to SSRIs. So it is categorized as a pregnancy C medication poses considerations for use during pregnancy, especially in the late third trimester. So exposure to SSRIs, including fluoxetine, this can lead to neonatal complications requiring intensive care. Symptoms indicative of withdrawal or direct toxic effects may necessitate tapering fluoxetine in that third trimester to mitigate any of those risks. So fluoxetine is given its it's, we got to look at the breastfeeding considerations because of that excretion into hu- human milk. So caution is, is advised when we prescribe that fluoxetine to nursing mothers. So changing medications during breastfeeding is generally not recommended for women who used fluoxetine during pregnancy. Alternatives with lower breast milk excretion may be preferred for newer mothers, not previously on fluoxetine. But again, that is something that you're going to need to communicate with another with the other provider or specialist that's taking care of mom baby. Now, considering the pediatric population, FDA approved for pediatric patients with MDD and OCD. Fluoxetine's impact on weight gain in children and adolescents is going to warrant your specific attention. So the long-term effects on growth and development remained understudied underscoring the need for careful monitoring and consideration. So we, we look at the evidence as best we can, but there's just not sufficient to, you know, warrant not doing more and more for watching the growth and development of kiddos that are on fluoxetine. Okay, hepatic impairment. So liver cirrhosis um, significantly affects the clearance and elimination of half-lives of fluoxetine and its active metabolite, norfluoxetine. So a reduced or less frequent dosing regimen is recommended for patients with cirrhosis or other conditions that may impair metabolism. This is going to ensure safe and effective treatment options. Fluoxetine is associated with a range of side effects that vary in severity and frequency among adults. So commonly reported side effects include insomnia, nausea, diarrhea, things like anorexia, dry mouth, headache, uh, drowsiness, anxiety, nervousness, and yawning. So sexual side effects such as decreased libido, decreased arousal are also really common, and you'll see it in a lot of your patients, and it's one of those uh, side effect profiles that they are most distressed with. Um, We can also see bruising and bleeding, although those are rare. So potential exasperation of underlying mania and psychosis, seizures, also rare, induction of mania, and even rare cases of activated suicidal ideation or behavior. And again, this is going to be particularly in the teenage population. We got to watch out for that SSRI-associated black box warning. Patients might also experience weight changes, muscle weakness, tremors, and pharyngitis. 
So the antagonism of the 5-HC2 Charlie receptor is thought to contribute to symptoms like anxiety, insomnia, and agitation, with some patients even experiencing panic attacks upon taking fluoxetine and adding it to their treatment plan. So most side effects presented by fluoxetine are immediate yet transient, often resolving over time without the need for any altering of the treatment plan, and that's the same for all other SSRIs. They tend to be both dose and time-dependent associated. So the emergence of agitation or activation symptoms may signal an underlying bipolar disorder. This is going to need your consideration of a mood stabilizer or an atypical antipsychotic. Now, given fluoxetine's activating properties, dosing in the early morning can help mitigate some insomnia that can ensue. So adjusting the dose may also alleviate distressing side effects, which that makes sense, right, when we consider the medication itself. So I would apply that to all other drugs that you're dealing with. If side effects persist or significantly impact the patient's quality of life, transitioning to an alternative antidepressant after a few weeks may be warranted. And so this strategy aims at reducing polypharmacy and enhance adherence to treatment. For insomnia, options like trazodone, mirtazapine, or hypnotic can be considered like remeltian. With mirtazapine, there's also potentially alleviating agitation or gastrointestinal side effects as well. So sexual dysfunction could be addressed with bupropion or sindalafil. So additionally, bupropion may offer relief from cognitive slowing or apathy associated with fluoxetine use. So there is a noted warning for increased risk of suicidality. We just talked about that, so I won't harp on it again. But we're really looking at anybody under the age of 24, specifically in the 18 to 24 age range. In the event that fluoxetine overdose occurs, especially in monotherapy, it's, it's rarely lethal, all right? That's the great thing about SSRIs. But the dynamics do change significantly with fluoxetine in combination with alcohol or other substances. So co-ingestion with alcohol can lead to ataxia and respiratory depression. This is going to complicate that clinical picture. So you have to be on the lookout for severe outcomes when they're mixing fluoxetine with alcohol. Now, excessive consumption of fluoxetine, especially when mixed with other serotonergic agents, can cause serotonin syndrome. Again, trio of symptoms here, alterations in mental status, things like confusion and agitation, autonomic instability. This is going to be changes in high blood pressure, rate, heart rate, temperature, rate, dysregulation, and then neuromuscular abnormalities, tremors, rigidity, and hyperreflexia. So management of an SSRI overdose, including fluoxetine, centers on supportive care. So this is going to involve airway protection, performing serial echocardio electrocardiograms, excuse me, ECGs, and we're going to do that to monitor for any signs of cardiotoxicity, and sedation with benzodiazepines to manage agitation or seizures. Gastrointestinal issues with activated charcoal may be considered if the patient presents within a time frame that makes it an intervention that can actually be utilized, typically within the first few hours of, of ingestion of uh, too much fluoxetine or other medications. So for cases where serotonin syndrome is diagnosed or suspected, treatment includes administration of, of uh, ciproheptadine. This is a serotonin antagonist. So ciproheptadine can mitigate the effects of that excessive serotonin in the system.
Okay, moving on to the next medication. We are working through this. This is going to be fluvoxamine. It's primarily used to treat OCD in adults and children aged 8 and older. So by increasing serotonin levels in the brain, fluvoxamine helps to reduce symptoms of OCD, which include recurrent and intrusive thoughts of repetitive behaviors. Beyond its primary indication, fluvoxamine has been explored for off-label uses such as the treatment of social anxiety disorder, panic disorder, depression, and various other conditions where SSRIs are found to be beneficial. Its effectiveness for these conditions, it does vary, and the decision to use fluvoxamine off-labely should be based on a thorough assessment. There are probably better options, but for OCD, great, great first step. So dose considerations for OCD, conventional tablets, going to start with a 50 milligram at bedtime or QHS. So the dose may be increased by 50 milligrams a day every four to seven days, aiming for a target range of 100 to 300 milligrams a day. Doses exceeding 100 milligrams a day should be divided every 12 hours. Social phobia, this is another off-label use. Immediate release, we're going to begin with 50 milligrams a day. The dose can be increased by 50 at weekly intervals with usual dose range of 100 to 300. Panic disorder, start at 25 to 50 milligrams per day. After several days, the dose can be gradually increased to 1 to 200. For patients not responding after several weeks, the dose may then be increased to a maximum of 300. Um, for PTSD, another off-label uh, off use, 50 milligrams a day, and this is by mouth initially, the dose can then be increased to 100 to 250 milligrams for adults and up to 100 milligrams for older adults, not to exceed 300 milligrams. So for long-term management, therapy may need to continue for one to two years. The possibility of indefinite continuation for those who respond well is also a possibility. So gradual tapering over two to six months is advised when discontinuing therapy to minimize withdrawal symptoms and monitoring for any of those re-emerging symptoms associated with specifically OCD. So for patients with acute PTSD, tapering period of six to 12 months of therapy may be considered, um, extending over two weeks to one month to prevent withdrawal symptoms, or over four to 12 weeks for patients at risk for relapse. So in cases of hepatic impairment, a dose decrease is recommended to account for altered metabolism, and then gradual tapering the dose is crucial to reduce the incidences of withdrawal symptoms and allowing for the detection of re-emerging symptoms like we just talked about. That's, that's going to be really important with the primary FDA-approved indications for taking fluvoxamine. You really want to watch for those emerging symptoms. All right, so fluvoxamine, fluvoxamines, pharmaco pharmacokinetics, and interactions with other drugs, we got to consider this for that clinical practice and having a full clinical picture. So fluvoxamine's metabolism primarily occurs in the liver through CYP450 enzyme system. Predominantly, this is going to involve the CYP1-alpha-2. And to a lesser extent, we're going to look at CYP2-delta-6 and CYP2-charlie-1-9. So the metabolism results in various metabolites, although none contribute significantly to the drug's therapeutic effects. So the reliance on CYP1-alpha-2 for its metabolism, this is going to make fluvoxamine susceptible to interactions with substances that induce or inhibit the enzyme, affecting the plasma levels and potential side effects. So common side effects associated with fluvoxamine include nausea, headaches, insomnia, drowsiness, dry mouth, and of course, sexual dysfunction, similar to other SSRIs. 
its side effect profile may be more favorable in certain respects compared with other medications within its class. So just keep that in mind if you have somebody who has, you know, been susceptible to common side effects with other medications that you've tried. Now, the use of fluvoxamine during pregnancy is, again, going to necessitate, necessitate a few clear approaches. We're going to balance the mental health needs of the mother against the potential risks to the fetus. Some studies do indicate possible association between SSRI use, including fluvoxamine, and congenital malformations or neonatal adaption syndrome. So evidence is fairly mixed on this, and the overall risk remains low. So close monitoring, possible dose adjustments, and then tapering before delivery are strategies employed to mitigate those risks. Um, Non-pharmacological interventions may also serve as alternatives or adjuncts to medication management. So just some other things to keep in mind when you're dealing with pregnancy and an SSRI, specifically here for fluvoxamine. All right, next up, we have paroxetine or Paxil. Paxil is FDA-approved for treating a range of conditions and disorders, so we're looking primarily at major depressive disorder. This is going to provide relief from those symptoms that are causing depressed mood and is indicated in the treatment of GAD as well, so this is going to reduce anxiety symptoms. Paroxetine is approved for the treatment of panic disorder with or without agoraphobia, reducing the frequency and intensity of panic attacks. It's also indicated for the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder. This is going to help reduce compulsions and obsessions associated with OCD. So paroxetine or Paxil is approved for treating social anxiety, also known as social phobia, reducing fear, anxiety, and avoidance associated with social situations. It is indicated for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. So this is going to add relief to PTSD symptoms such as flashbacks, nightmares, and severe anxiety. Proxetine is approved for the treatment of premenstrual dysphoric disorder, addressing severe mood swings, irritability, and other symptoms are related to PMDD. Paroxetine is known to cause a spectrum of side effects. Initial stages of treatment may bring nausea, other digestive disturbances such as things like diarrhea, constipation. So these are more commonly reported adverse effects with the initial um, initiation of this medication. So some other significant concerns uh, for many patients is sexual dysfunction. This can manifest again as decreased libido, difficulty achieving orgasm, or erectile dysfunction for men. So these side effects, they're distressing. They're typically managed through dose adjustments or supplemental therapies like adding Welbutrin or Bupropion to the treatment plan. Paroxetine can affect sleep patterns. This is going to lead to either drowsiness or insomnia, impacting daily function and overall quality of life for some patients. So we have to consider that if your patient starts reporting you know, difficulty sleeping or being exhausted during the day. Some individuals may experience dizziness, particularly when standing up quickly due to that fluctuation in blood pressure. Weight changes, either gain or loss, are also possible with, uh, with Paxil. This is going to Definitely necessitate the need for monitoring weight and potentially addressing these changes through lifestyle interventions, uh, CDC recommendations and my plate exercise recommendations. So dry mouth and increased sweating, including night sweats and other side effects that may not only be bothersome to the patient, but these can have implications on dental health and personal comfort as well as hygiene issues. So a subset of users 
report experiencing tremors. This is going to add to physical discomfort associated with this particular medication, emotional blunting or a reduction in the intensity of emotional experiences, and uh, concentration issues can also occur. This is going to include difficulties with memory. This can also affect personal relationships and performance at work and in the school setting. So as you can see, these are all really important topics and education points that you have to have with your patient. So crucially, abrupt discontinuation of paroxetine can lead to withdrawal symptoms, ranging from flu-like symptoms to dizziness and electric shock-like sensations. So we got to highlight that importance of tapering off under your medical supervision. So patients beginning paroxetine treatment should have an open dialogue with, with you as the PMHMP about all of these side effects that we just talked about. So through ongoing communication, tailored treatment adjustment plans, we're going to look at hopefully, one, educating them to know when they're, you know, when they could potentially happen and how they can go away or offering them augmentation therapy to help with some of these side effects. So many of the adverse effects of paroxetine can be effectively managed, right? Allowing for continuation of that therapy especially if it's if it's helping achieve the therapeutic goals. So patients within the mental health realm, you know, we're going to be dealing with lots of side effects and it, it's systematic at, at many times and it's, it is very difficult to deal with. But if you will have that therapeutic relationship and open communication and demonstrate to them that you know what a good a next step would be is going to go a long way to keeping them not only satisfied with the care that they're receiving, but confident that you know what you're doing. And that's, that's a really important uh, step in the therapeutic relationship. Let's step into metabolism of paroxetine. It is primarily metabolized in the liver, like all or like, like most um, psychotropic medications. This leads to undergoing extensive first-pass metabolism. So the process involves several cytochrome P450 enzymes, with CYP2-delta-6 playing a significant role in the biotransformation. So the metabolism of paroxetine results in the formation of various metabolites, none of which significantly contribute to the drug's therapeutic effects, but it is part of the process. Due to its reliance on the CYP2-delta-6 enzyme for metabolism, paroxetine can be involved in drug-to-drug interactions with other medications that are metabolized by that same enzyme system. So individuals who are poor metabolizers of CYP2-delta-6 are an inherent trait as such can affect that enzyme activity, they are also going to be at risk for experiencing higher plasma concentration levels of paroxetine. This is going to lead to increased risk of side effects. Conversely, those with a high activity of CYP2-delta-6 might metabolize the drugs more rapidly, potentially reducing its efficacy. So paroxetine is administered orally and can be taken with or without food, available in intermediate intermediate release tablets, controlled release tablets, and liquid form. So its dosing is tailored based on a patient's symptoms, their tolerance, and specific conditions being treated at that particular time, with the flexibility to be administered at any time of the day that best suits the patient's tolerance. So like we said, paroxetine achieves a steady state, mean half-life, 21 hours, and is metabolized by that liver enzyme, the CYP452 delta-6. So its metabolism leads to about 62% being metabolized over a 10-day post-dosing period, 
with 36% excreted in feces and 2% in the urine. So paroxetine um, can inhibit CYP2 delta-6, going to have that doubling of plasma concentration with 50% dose increase, indicating a need for careful monitoring. So hopefully we, we've, you know, 2 delta-6 is what we're looking at for paroxetine here, considering that for both your inhibitors and inducers of that specific enzyme. Okay, so we talked a little bit about dosing and, and the type of dosage that are available um, in the form that they're available with uh, paroxetine. Now let's look at actual dose recommendations by the conditions. So for major depressive disorder, adults are going to start with about 20 milligrams a day immediate release or 25 milligrams a day controlled release. With the adjustments are going to be based on response. And now this is going to go up to 50 milligrams a day for immediate release or 62.5 milligrams a day for controlled release. Geriatric doses start lower with a maximum of 40 milligrams a day. For GAD, starting at 20 milligrams a day, immediate release, with possible hydration to a maximum of 60 milligrams a day. Geriatric populations may find efficacy at 20 milligrams a day, but can increase to 40 milligrams a day for GAD as needed. Now, PMDD, 12.5 milligrams a day to 25 milligrams a day, controlled release, or 5 milligrams a day to 30 milligrams a day for immediate release. Vasomotor disorder secondary to menopause, 12.5 milligrams a day, titrated to 25 milligrams a week in the controlled release. OCD, we're going to start at 20 milligrams a day, immediate release, increasing as tolerated to get us to that 60 milligrams a day. Now, pediatric dosing begins at 10 milligrams a day with a maximum of 50 milligrams a day for OCD. Panic disorder, we can also give it for that. Adults and geriatrics start at 10 milligrams a day, immediate release, with a maximum of 60 milligrams a day for adults and 40 milligrams a day for geriatrics. Finally, let's take a look at post-traumatic stress disorder and social phobias. So we're going to start at 20 milligrams a day for immediate release with effective doses ranging up to 60 milligrams a day. So a couple special considerations, renal impairment, right? Dosing adjustments are based on creatinine clearance and specific guidelines for those with severe impairment of the renal system. So we want to make sure that we are looking in the publications and we're dosing appropriately if our patient has renal impairment. Hepatic impairment in cases of severe hepatic impairment, starting doses and maximum doses are adjusted to account for decreased metabolism capacity. All right, we are at the last one here. And this one, we're, we're going to put it in the SSRI category, but it is going to have some special properties to it as well. So this is what's known as velazodone or Vibrid. So Vibrid is a medication used in the treatment of major depressive disorder in adults. It is unique among antidepressants as it combines selective serotonin reuptake inhibition or SSRI action with partial agonist activity at the 5-HT1 alpha receptor. Again, it's SSRI action with partial agonist activity at the 5-HT1 alpha receptor sites, offering a dual mechanism of action intended to improve mood and reduce depressive symptoms. 
So velazodone is specifically approved by the FDA for the treatment of MDD. Its efficacy in treating MDD has been established through clinical trials that demonstrated significant improvements in depression symptoms compared to its placebo. So velazodone has garnered interest for its potential off-label applications across a variety of symptoms. So among conditions for which velazodone is considered off-labely is generalized anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, social anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and panic disorder. The rationale for exploring velazodone in these areas is based on the established efficacy of SSRIs in treating anxiety and mood disorders, with velazodone's unique pharmacological profile offering a potentially effective treatment option, really. I mean, it's, it's one that I'm, I'm seeing more and more in clinical practice. However, the evidence supporting its use in these other conditions, with much of the uh, of it being anecdotal or derived from smaller studies rather than large-scale randomized clinical trials, is important to consider as well, all right? So for clinicians considering velazodone for off-label use, we got to look away the, the available evidence monitor the the response closely from the patient, and then remained informed about regulatory guidelines concerning all of the off-label prescribing. So I'm, I'm kind of focusing on this one here because the, the evidence is a little more, you know, less, less apparent whenever we, we consider the off-label uses of Vibrid. So just keep that in mind as we uh, move forward with the understanding of this specific medication. So while velazodone shows promise for the research, as I was just hinting on, we need it to establish its efficacy and its safety for anything beyond major depressive disorder. So make sure that you are confident in your off-label use and that you present all of the information and you document it appropriately in the medical record. All right. So dosing and administration. Velazodone is administered orally with recommended starting dose of 10 milligrams once daily. We're going to do that for seven days, followed by an increase to 20 milligrams once daily for an additional seven days. So based on tolerability and clinical response, the dose can be increased to the target dose of 40 milligrams once daily. It should be taken with food to enhance absorption. A gradual dose reduction is recommended for discontinuation rather than abrupt cessation or stopping in order to minimize that risk of withdrawal. Side effects that are common with velazodone are going to be diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and insomnia. Sexual dysfunction, less common side effect, may also occur. So like other antidepressants, velazodone carries that warning for increased risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors in adolescent and young adults. Special considerations, pregnancy and breastfeeding. Velazodone um, should be used in pregnancy only if the benefits justify the potential risks to the fetus. Caution is advised. Make sure that any breastfeeding or pregnant woman that is your patient and she's either on or wants to go on it, that you are communicating with her specialty care team. Pediatric use. So the safety and effectiveness of velazodone in pediatric patients have not been established. In elderly patients, no overall difference in safety or efficacy was, was observed between elderly and young patients, but greater sensitivity of some older individuals cannot be ruled out based on everything that we've talked about today. Hepatic and renal impairment, patients with severe renal or hepatic impairment should be monitored closely, and we do have to consider those dose adjustments based on the tolerance and efficacy and severity of the hepatic and renal impairment. All right, finally, 
Let's talk about serotonin syndrome again, because this will appear on your exams, guaranteed. So by this point in, let's see, we're well over an hour into this discussion of just a few medications within the SSRI classification. But serotonin syndrome, potentially life-threatening condition, it's going to result from that excessive accumulation of serotonin in the central nervous system. This is going to occur when serotonergic medications are taken in combination or overdosed, such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRIs, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, MAOIs, and other drugs that increase serotonin levels. Symptoms, again, range from mild to severe, typically manifest rapidly within hours of changes in medication regimen. So this is something that you have to teach when you start a treatment and when you make any changes or add anything to treatment. It's a, by the end of your treatment with this patient, they should be able to teach back everything that you have taught them about serotonin syndrome because you have notified them so many times. All right. It, that's how, how often it should be taught. So some of these side effects are going to include cognitive changes, confusion, hyperactivity, headache, autonomic effects. This is hyperthermia, increased temperature, right? Hypertension, tachycardia, nausea, diarrhea. Somatic effects, myoclonus, hyperreflexia, and tremor. So in severe cases, this can lead to seizures, rhabdomyolysis, metabolic acidosis, and even death. It is considered an emergency situation. So finally, let's talk about those treatments. Primary treatment for serotonin syndrome involves discontinuing the serotonergic medication that is responsible for the syndrome, and then we want to provide supportive care in order to stabilize the patient. This can include cooling measures for hyperthermia, such as a cooling blanket or ice packs. That's going to need to be monitored within an appropriate arena like the emergency department. Sedation with benzodiazepines to control agitation and tremors. Intravenous fluids to prevent dehydration and maintain blood pressure. Serotonin antagonists such as cyproheptidine. This is going to be used in those severe cases. There is some disagreement in the professional world about utilizing cyproheptidine, but for purposes of your exam, that is going to be the serotonin antagonist that is utilized. So in cases of, of, of severe serotonin syndrome, hospitalization is probably going to be necessary in order to manage the complications effectively. All right, so that's serotonin syndrome. Definitely consider it. Remember, when we're switching from an SSRI to an MAOI, we have to utilize the, pro the proper timing. We talked about that in this discussion today, but it is clearly outlined in a, a very concise and targeted way in the seminars that are preparing you for your certification exams. All right. We talked about a lot. We went over a lot of different things. Hopefully, hopefully you made good notes. You will see a lot of this in the seminars. We try to condense it so that you're just getting the information that you need to memorize. But if you need a further, if you need to really dive into this deeper because you don't feel like you got enough when you're in school, hopefully this, this podcast was able to give you more information regarding the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that are primarily used for as antidepressants, but have a wide range of use for both depression and anxiety and other disorders that incorporate depression and anxiety within them. 
It is a pleasure, as always, talking with you. I look forward to seeing you in our in-person seminars for PMHMP certification review, as well as the on-demand options where you have 24 access seven days a week to all of our study materials that are updated constantly. And we are working hard to make sure that you have all of the evidence-based material that you need in order to prepare for your exam. I'm Dr. John Rossi. I love this field of work. I love nurse practitioners. I think we are doing amazing things for a healthcare system that is in dire need of professionals like us. Keep doing what you're doing. Be positive. Remember, this is, this is not something that's going to come with, with, you know, with the snap of a finger. You have to study. You have to be patient with yourself. You have to take time, take breaks, and give yourself some grace as you you know, marathon, sprint, lay down and rest, get up again, whatever you need to do on this journey to the finish line of certification, just do it. That's going to be the most important thing. Do what you need to do, but at the end of the day, just do it. Get in that um, testing center, finish this exam, and then use all of this information that we're learning in these podcasts and in these review sessions to go out and perform the best care that you can while establishing a healthy, strong, and productive therapeutic relationship and alliance with your patients, team members, and interdisciplinary team members. Thank you again, Dr. John Rossi for Clarity Education Systems and www.pmhnptesting.com. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.